I'm Kieran. And I'm Eve. This is Kitchen Table Cult. Where two quiverful escapees talk about our experiences in the cultish underbelly of the religious right. Hi, Eve. Hey, Kieran. How are you? <laughs> we did it. We were so close. We, we tried very hard. We always overlap with each other oh on this. Oh, my God. We just we're on the same wavelength. It, it happens. It's okay. I I have been um, talking to someone a lot who's married to a Pisces, and he keeps describing my self care habits as Pisces culture, and I feel like that's part of why we have this going on. Mm-hmm. You and I are just like kind of on the same chill wavelength a lot. Yeah, that tracks tracks a lot. Lindsay, what's your sun sign? <laughs> <laughs> let's let's get into the astrology right off. Yeah, this is totally not what you're here for. <laughs> so I mean, I'm not, I so I'm a Virgo, like barely, like August 24th. So okay, yeah, I'm not really sure what that means, but yeah, that's me. Detail oriented, at the very least. Okay, wait, no, that's not me at all. <laughs> <laughs> that's not the stereotype about Virgos. I'm a, I'm a bad Virgo. Then. <laughs> <laughs> Um, okay, so what do you want our audience to actually know about you and why are you here? I'm very excited you're here. I'm very excited to be here too. So I've had your podcast actually on my radar like for a little while. I'm so glad you reached out to me because that gave me like a little prompting to dig a little bit more. And I'm so glad because this is like one of those areas where it's good to know there's other people out there who have had the same experiences. <laughs> mm. So I'm really glad to be talking to you right now. I am an assistant teaching professor of history at Florida International University, Miami, Florida. I was homeschooled K through 12. So a lot of similar background, grew up in a quiverful family. And uh, so I teach history here at FIU. And I talk about, I'm in the past couple of years, I've been digging more and more into the history of homeschooling. Uh, in particular. And so I look at, in general, in my research, global Christian evangelicalism and its interaction also with American politics and educational policy. So yeah, so I'm really glad to be here and kind of talk a little bit more about it. So much in common. I was so excited when I found your your work. I was like, oh my God, someone's finally doing this. Yes. I don't feel like there are very many people studying what you are studying is that is that accurate there's so I think it's starting right we're kind of a young generation um we're all kind of like hitting that young professional stage and so I think there's going to be more but I certainly only started looking into this probably in the last three to four years so um, I'm hoping that there's more (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I feel like I can count the number of homeschooling researchers like yeah. on two hands right now. We should make a a, a goal of getting them all on here. <laughs> we should. We should. We've had Rachel Coleman. Oh yeah. We're having you. Now we just need to get some of the other some of the other cool mm-hmm. kids who do the research. Uh, in terms of the academic angle of, of this research, I know that, like obviously this is interesting because there's a personal connection, but as an academic, what what brought you to study this? Yeah, so so it's kind of like a long story, which I'll sort of condense as much as possible. Mm-hmm. Um, so because I, I grew up in that subculture, I when I finally did get to college, I was originally going to do something like STEM related, biology, that was my major. 
but more and more I was drawn to to my history classes. And I think it was because like growing up, I was always one who I never felt like I fit in. Like with the people around me, I was always like, what's going on? What's wrong with me? Why am I, <laughs> why am I not on the same page as everybody around me? Related <laughs> Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, so that's what led me into history is this question of why, like, what happened to my parents? <laughs> why did I end up where I was at? <laughs> and that's the evergreen right there. What happened yeah. to my parents? <laughs> yeah. What happened to my parents? Where, well, why do I not? Where, where am I? So, so that's what led me into history. Um, skip forward a few years. I'm in graduate school, and I was doing a dissertation on Pentecostals um, and Pentecostal networking in the early 20th century um, in the United States and South Africa. And so I'm on my dissertation research. I'm in Johannesburg. I'm in this old Dutch colonial archives of the Apostolic Faith Mission. And I open up this dusty old uh, file cabinet and I find all these magazines. And these are old Pentecostal magazines. And this becomes the basis of my dissertation, which is looking at Pentecostal networking through periodical culture. But the Hmm. interesting thing about it was at the time when I saw them, I was like, I recognize this. Like I recognize this from like my childhood, like this style of, of, of media. And because I had grown up, my mother had subscribed to things like Gentle Spirit. We had the teaching home. We had all these like homeschooling magazines which I never thought about on a regular basis until I came face to face with that in those archives. So mm-hmm. set, set that aside for a few years, wrote my dissertation. I'm teaching in a private school at this point, And this was probably two or three years ago. And just on a whim, I'm like home for the holidays. And I asked my mom, I was like, mom, <laughs> like, what happened to those old, like gentle spirit magazines, those old magazines you used to have, you had boxes of them. I like, where are they? And she's like, so funny. You bring that up. Like two weeks ago, I was cleaning out the basement and I threw them all away. It was like, (laughs) my little historian heart was like broken. I was like, no, mom, you can't do this. She's like, I may still have a few more. She had like a few, like a few more literally. So, but that, at that moment I realized, so this is part of my history, but it's part of like a wider community that's being lost because I don't know how many women are in my mom's position where they don't feel like they want this around anymore. It's not relevant to them and they're throwing it away. But like these stories and the people who are in these magazines are kind of like the, these are like the the hidden voices of this movement. And mm-hmm. I think they need to be preserved for it for any outsider to really understand kind of like what was going on, like this is an important part of the history. So from that point on, I realized, okay, this is all disappearing. I need to like figure out what's going on. So I started collecting these items. I went on all kinds of like Facebook homeschooling groups, eBay, everything I could find to try to track. eBay is good for that stuff. Yeah. And so I've built at this point what I think is like probably the biggest collection of anybody who like has these particular magazines. I've got them all over my house in my office. And and so this is kind of like the formation of what I hope is going to become an archive for people who want to study this, 
as well as like the beginning of a new research project. So that was, that's kind of like the, the longish history of what led me to homeschooling. And initially in graduate school, I was like, I'm not going back to that. I don't want anyone to think about it. <laughs> right. <laughs> but it was that moment kind of when realizing like this is going away and I don't actually want this to be lost that I realized, okay, we need to do something about this. So yeah. That's that reminds me. I think, I think I've got like probably a couple dozen King's Daughter issues oh from God. back in the day. I think day. I have like one of the <laughs> magazine in my bookshelf right now. I, I've been collecting like this whole pile under under my other desk over there is is just all uh, parenting and purity culture books that I've been collecting off eBay. So it is they they are disappearing. They used to be everywhere, yeah. and they are disappearing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. Like I'm glad that the publishers aren't getting money off of them, but at the same time, like we need to preserve at least one copy, <laughs> one copy we for ju- posterity. We just need we, we just need to infiltrate and have one rogue adult child from each publishing family <laughs> yes. save the InDesign files and run. <laughs> yes, please do that. We just can set up scanned. an email address, a private Dropbox, whatever you need. If this is like your shit. We will, <laughs> we will happily take it. Thank you. Um, just in case, what for our listeners, if there's anything in particular you're currently looking for that you'd be really excited to get your hands on? Oh, gosh. So in particular, I'm looking f- – so really anything. But in particular, one of the ones that I'm really interested in is there was one that was devoted primarily to African-American homeschoolers called The Drinking Gourd very difficult. Oh, to find. I remember seeing that go bra- across once. Very difficult to find. So if anybody has any of those, I would love to get in touch with you. <laughs> yeah. I'll scan them and send them back, but I just want like digital copies of all these. Very cool. Great. So, um, while you're, you know, researching all of these magazines and, and preserving them and stuff, what are some, what are some interesting things that you discovered and like, what isn't talked about that should be talked about more? Tell us a little bit more about like, what's so exciting about these weird random magazines that we're preserving for some reason? Yeah, so I would, so one of the most important things I think about these magazines is it's so difficult to get at. And I started to realize this when I was teaching actually college, I started to have every now and then a couple homeschooled students. And one of the things in talking with them that I started and even like people on eBay that I bought stuff from and I actually had like little conversations with is like how much the perspectives of some of the people in this movement change, especially like once their children were grown. I was really interested in like the women, the mothers who Mm -hmm. raised their children in this subculture. And then, you know, now they're empty nesters or whatever. Like, what do you think looking back on it? And so one of the most surprising things I would say about the movement, A, it's diverse. It's much more diverse, I think, than most people realize. Like we, we tend to talk about it. I tend to talk about it even as like a white evangelical homeschooling culture. But while it was predominantly white, it was pretty diverse, even from its earliest days. It was also politically, you've got like a really weird mix of like, very left anti mass education Mm -hmm. folks, very hard right folks. And so while a lot of us have like very similar 
kind of experiences growing up, we all had very different childhoods in a way. And, and it really depended on based on the region, based on the family, based on the local church, if it even existed, right? Mm-hmm. Based on the time frame. I mean, pre-internet and post-internet. So yeah, true. Yeah. So <laughs> we, we want to talk about, about that, that later. We want to talk about that and we'll come back to that one. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So it was, so it's really diverse, but even though it's diverse, it's also super connected. And you can see this in these magazines, the way they're structured, the people who write in and the letters that are published, there's, there's a connection there. There's a network there that I really want to eventually map out. Mm-hmm. Are you talking like L word style or? <laughs> what do you mean? Like L word style? Like. Uh, oh, this is a the TV show, The L Word, where they oh, have yeah. everyone who slept with everyone. <laughs> okay. Well, yeah, sort of. <laughs> okay. Like, like, I'm like, are you talking like literal map it out? <laughs> yeah. So like, so see, like, who is, who knows who, what are the connections? What are the connections to politics? And how is this influencing, yeah, educational policy, right? So like, there's this grassroots, like, very almost like hidden side of the homeschooling movement, but it has an outsized effect, right? Mm-hmm. And so I really want to see like, what are those connections? Mm, yeah. Probably, though, I would say the most surprising thing that I've seen so far that is underreported. And this may be because this probably gets into to politics a little bit, but it's that so much of this movement was female led and female directed, which is something that I think a lot of academics like myself find a little uncomfortable because it is a very patriarchal Mm -hmm. movement that they're advocating for. But so many of the people who are involved in the publishing of these magazines, so many of the the families, like the, the impetus and the agency is actually female driven. And that for me is a really interesting, troubling, but interesting question that I'd like to explore more. Yeah, I I feel like there's a lot of overlap between, I mean, this is, this is a bit of a a reach, but this is something I experienced firsthand is like watching um, patriarchy work in Central Asia when I was there for the Peace Corps. There was a certain level of buy-in from the women because they got a certain level of reward for their suffering. And, you know, in general American culture, if you buy into patriarchy, you don't get a lot back. You know, you get discarded for the new edition when you're, you're 45. You know, he goes and has a midlife crisis and gets a new wife and starts a new family. And, you know, you don't get the payout for all of the the work you put into investing in the, the man and the family and the home and all of that. And I, I kind of wonder if something is happening in that this culture where there is a little bit more like assurance and security of that like long-term benefit from being invested in the system, like because of the, the moral teachings. I mean, it doesn't necessarily work, (laughs) but I feel like there's a little bit more like temptation to believe that like, it's going to be fine because I bought into it. And so if I reinforce it, then I'll be safe. Yeah. I mean, like my parents were really overt about it and this is just, my family so it obviously isn't like 
a statistical scientific thing, but like my parents' whole thing that they told me growing up and the thing that they used to justify not teaching me math and science was that being a girl is just better because you don't have to get a job. You don't have to worry about providing for the family. Mm -hmm. You don't have to worry about making big financial important decisions. All you have to do is have a family and raise the kids. And you don't have to worry about everything that adulthood brings because you have a man to shield you from that. And And I think that's like kind of maybe not as explicit, but I think that's like one of the undercurrents. And I want to spell out my connection to to what I saw in Kyrgyzstan a little bit more clearly, just so you're you're understanding what I'm thinking of. Kieran already knows because we've talked about this a bunch, but there's this this like discussion about um, bride kidnapping in, and it's not super common, um, although it's 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 talked about a lot because it is a a kind of an interesting phenomenon in Central Asia. But bride kidnapping will often have this moment where um, the young girl is brought into a back room and if she won't put on the headscarf to signify that she's like accepted the offer of marriage from the young man who has kidnapped her, the women of the family will come back and talk to her and talk her into it. And the arguments are are very along the lines of like, I was kidnapped and my husband loves me and I'm great. Like my li- look how great my life has been. And it's very much the like, I had to suffer. So why c- shouldn't you kind of mindset? And there's, even if you're not bride kidnapped, like the, the new bride is, is the like house bitch. Like you are doing, you're bringing the tea, you are making the dinner, you are cleaning things, you're taking care of the elders, you're on call for all of the housework. But if you stick it out, someday you'll be the matriarch and you'll have a Kaylin serving you tea and, you know, making your life easy for you. So like, it's this vicious cycle. So that's that's kind of what I, I think of when I think of like why the women are such, you know, ag- aggressive enforcers of Christian patriarchy. Yeah, it's so it's really interesting. I t- I'm teaching actually this semester um, a course on the history of American conservatism. And one of the the figures we've been looking at is Phyllis Schlafly. Uh-huh. <laughs> it took us I, 19 minutes to get there. Yeah, I think we just need to start keeping a, a, a little timer yeah, for that because, God, she comes up all the time. She does. So so I watched the Hulu, um, the Hulu Mrs. America, um, and I thought oh, actually I they- I forgot to finish it. I need to finish it, but they did do a good it? job. I thought they did a great job. I thought they did a great mm-hmm. job. And there's this one moment- where Bella Abzug is meeting like some of her, uh, some of Schlafly's supporters, like at one of the conferences or something, and they run into each other. And it's a really poignant moment where basically Bella spells out to them that like Phyllis Schlafly in a weird way is kind of a proponent of the second wave feminism and what she's doing. And that is so exactly what some of these women in the homeschooling movement also were doing. Um, Cheryl Lindsay from Gentle Spirit is one of those figures uh, that comes to mind because like they have this vision of the home as like building this, this home and being prosperous 
in terms of like publishing this magazine to where their husband will be able to come home and they'll all live this like wonderful life with the children. Francis mm-hmm. Schaefer, um, what is it? What's her name? Not Fra- Francis Schaefer's wife wrote a book called The Art of Homemaking or The Secret Art of Homemaking. And it's very similar along these lines. And I feel like Mary Pride's stuff is also Mm -hmm. hits on these. Absolutely. And it's to bring everybody home and then we'll all be working at home and it'll be self-sufficient. So it ties into this like really idealized version of like home capitalism. And, and what happens though, (laughs) what happens is that in her case, the husband does come home and then there's just, there's so much trouble. And mm-hmm. eventually in her case, like the, it falls apart. And for a lot of these women, I think it, it seems that it follows a similar trajectory. And so that's just like such to me, like a really, like they follow this model. They're actually, even though they're supporting like this profoundly anti-feminist ideology, they are working in such a way that they want to have it all. They want to be the mom. They want to be also like I mean, Phyllis Schlafly like would brag about how she flew home and was home in time for yeah. dinner every night. Yeah. Like she did bedtimes. Like that was her like, okay, that takes a lot of money. That takes a lot of yeah. flexibility. That takes a lot of childcare. And yeah, um, wouldn't we all want to have that? <laughs> right. If only we were all wealthy enough to be able to like have that as an option. Yeah. And I think part of the problem is like they are setting up this kind of like idealized vision of the family. And so you do get like a lot of these, you get a lot of people who try to to mimic this, to mm-hmm. to make to mold this in their own lives. And yeah. Yeah, it turns out you need a lot of privilege and resources to make that even close to work. Yeah. And even then, like, still rough. That's actually something that I I think I want to ask you, but I didn't put on our, our list. But, like, what's the class breakdown that you've seen from what you've noticed in the magazines in terms of, like, economic status and background? So it's hard because it's not really ever explicitly stated, right? Um, I would say this is generally a middle class, like you have to have enough money in one sense to live off of one income, right? Mm -hmm. Now, part of this movement is moving into really, the idea is to move into really rural areas by very cheap land and live as cheaply as possible. Um, there's a whole dissertation book, <laughs> like whole realm of scholarship to be written on what is sort of like the, the Dave Ramsification of Christianity that has yet to be mm. done that people really need to pick up on. Yes. But part of this would, is... Would love to see that. <laughs> <laughs> part of this is... Part of this whole movement is is doing that. It's being is living this sort of like self sufficient life. They're doing it. They're doing it cheaply. Like you don't, in a sense, you have to have you have to have an investment to be able to do that. You have to have like grandparents who can help you with the down payment for the land mm-hmm. or whatever. But once you're there, yes, it's very cheap. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. I mean, let's be real. Like if you're not going, like 
if you're homeschooling and you're not sending your, like you're not paying for all these like extracurricular things, then yeah, I mean, okay, it doesn't cost it, but you're getting what you're paid for too, which yeah. is yeah. what I think. <laughs> and that's the problem. Yeah. My parents yeah. liked to brag about how <laughs> Like, you know, public schools spend 500 to $1,000 per child. And my parents were like, we spend $500 for eight children. And it's like, well. And therein that. lies the problem. <laughs> right. There's, and we have questions. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, moving on from, from class, you talked about is this movement was more diverse than you than is often discussed about. Do you think fo- focusing on homeschooling in the U.S. as historically a predominantly white phenomenon is a useful way of looking at it? So I literally get asked this question at every single talk I give: <laughs> is <laughs> is homeschooling a result of like white flight? Right, uh, and I think it depends. It depends on certainly the region. Certainly the region. Um, I don't know that looking at it through a, a, I think that's one way of looking at it. And it does have, like, you're going to get a certain result from that. But I don't think that's the only thing. And I think there's two reasons for this. One is that I'm not sure, and I've, I've spoken to others my age who we've talked about this. And I'm not sure that the timeline exactly matches up. Hmm. So homeschooling really starts to take off in the 80s, I would say, and especially the 90s. But for desegregation and busing, like this is primarily like a late 60s, early 70s, um, mid 70s phenomenon. I'm not sure. It's just not close enough. So the way I see that is, is the it's the private schools. They go to the private schools. The private schools, sure. And then once the private schools get desegregated, in like individual lawsuits, that's when I see the. You could you could draw that out. I think the I think the one of the the second point is that in these sources, which is really interesting, race is almost never brought up. Not even in coded terms is mm-hmm. race ever brought up. Now that in and of itself, I think, is something to be looked into. Mm-hmm. But I what is brought up over and over again are things like what they would call radical sex education, what they would call like the gay rights agenda, what they would call like prayer being taken out of public schools. These are the things that they are explicitly rejecting and explicitly listing as reasons for why they're homeschooling. Mm -hmm. And it's never almost, I mean, I've never come across any sort of like, well, desegregation issue. Now it may be that it's just taboo by this point in time, and so they're not gonna—they're not gonna explicit. It's not cool to talk about, right? And they may not be saying it, but they are explicit, very, very explicit about other things. And so I think, just in terms of looking at the sources, it is important to kind of see what they're saying and right. and look at that as at least one cause. Mm-hmm. Um, and that timeline, I do think, matches up a bit a bit better. Mm-hmm. That also like is interesting and kind of makes sense. So I know we have some other questions, but I really want to talk about like the difference between before and after the internet. Yeah, because I feel like this is a huge, a huge thing. I feel like blogs. I feel like just because we met on the internet and did all this stuff on the internet. uh, Yeah, yeah. I think my my like working theory right now is like homeschool mommy blogs invented influencing. 
as we know it today, like Instagram influencing. And I think that the children of homeschool mommy bloggers killed the purity culture movement because they were talking about it online. Wow. I I love that. (laughs) (laughs) We've been talking about this for ages. If this is exciting to you, stay tuned. There's more. Um, But like, but seriously, I feel like once once homeschool alumni were able to talk to each other, there was a massive shift. Before, when it was magazines and it was edited, you weren't having the horror stories coming out that you saw in like yeah. Homeschoolers Anonymous. So it wasn't curated. And once there was no, you know, authority curating the material, all hell broke loose. Well, yeah, first, I mean, for sure the internet is a, has a democratizing effect on availability to information. And for sure, I can see how that would absolutely (laughs) help to elevate voices that had otherwise been, uh, been shut up. No, it's a really, it's a really interesting theory. The, so, so my experience, like talking to people like pre and post internet is that it was kind of like a different game. I mean, so both of you, I'm assuming were probably like you had access to, to groups as you. My, so my family homeschooled in California um, until 2000. And so in California, you had to do the private school loophole model. So we had a homeschool group that we were part of that, you know, covered us with accreditation. And so we would yeah. meet with them to do like, science experiments or field trips yeah. or, you know, but so it was like a, maybe a couple times a month, we'd see the the other homeschoolers in the same group. After that, it was when we moved to Virginia, it was under the religious exemption clause and it was only other homeschoolers at church or if we did like softball or swim team and there were, you know, other homeschoolers around. Yeah. My group experience was like, it varied depending on how friendly my parents were. So there was like <laughs> a uh, a large community of homeschoolers where I grew up in Florida. And we would be part of that off and on. And then when we moved, we were also part of groups off and on. And so I my, my, I either like saw people at like home education days at church when like we had parent classes once a week or I would only see people like at church and it just depended on my parents mood that year. I think there's another element too of the Richmond homeschool community was really, really active and they had a lot of extracurriculars and a lot of co-ops and a lot of like groups and, and activities. And there was, you could have a very robust social life, but you had to have a certain level of income to be able to do that. And a certain number of kids to be able to do that. And so if you were quiverful, you kind of didn't get to participate in that. Yeah. If, if you were under a certain like income level, like it just wasn't accessible to us. So I wasn't participating in those things, but I, I could have if we just had Mark Asher throw at it. And then, so within those groups, like, did you, so, but you had access like to the internet and to other. We got our first computer in um, 1998. We always had a family, like a computer. joint family internet account, uh, email address, email account. Mm-hmm. Nobody had private email accounts. And then, yeah, we had one computer. It was in a public area, you know, 
you were always getting monitored by a software, all those things. Um, and in like 2003, 2004, the, my peers in the homeschool community in Richmond started um, making Zangas. So they, they all started their little Zangas and were keeping up with each other that way. And that was my first taste of, of the internet. I wasn't allowed to make one, but I read everybody's, you know? <laughs> um, and then, and then at a certain point I was allowed to make my own and it was like specifically for a school project. And of course I just kind of like, you know, leaned into that and was like, well, we're just never stopping this one. <laughs> this, this school project lasts forever. Mm-hmm. Still doing it. It's yeah. Fine. Yeah. Yeah. My family got, I think we got our first computer in like 95, but the internet wasn't really a thing in my life until like 98 and 2000. Um, And it was obviously public, but all my friends in 2004 also got Zangas. And so I managed to convince my parents to let me have a Zanga by pretending to be a boy on the internet because apparently boys on the internet don't get solicited by creepy old men. So I had this wonderful like time of pretending to be a boy online for like a year and a half. I remember your whole like coming out too. It was really funny. You're like, surprise, I'm a girl. It was it was <laughs> so, jokes on you. It was so delicious and terrifying. But it was jokes on you. We wanted some people wanted to do like a Bible study over like Skype or whatever it is that we used. Maybe it was over the phone. It and was I a was group like chat. Yeah. And I was like, it's going to be like, people are going to hear my voice. And Mm -hmm. I sound like a girl. So I guess I have (laughs) to tell people now. Yeah. Well, and I was allowed to, but I had to use a pseudonym. So I was Jackie, spelled the French way for like, uh, like, oh my God, for like 10 years. It was like, so yeah, we met, we met through like mutuals on Zanga in like 2005. Yeah. And then we okay. just kept blogging forever. And I was allowed to get my first email address when I was like helping run a magazine and I had to have an editorial email address and my father yeah. came for that as long as I'm, he could have the password. <laughs> I managed to get my first email address for uh, speech and debate stuff, but my parents had to have the password and be able to access it and be able to read all my emails and chats and like Mm-hmm. All of that, and of course the the safe eyes. But we had to we had to turn off the safe eyes the year that the speech and debate topic was about medical malpractice because I literally couldn't <laughs> look anything up, and I was like, I have to do research. But literally every medical topic outside of like immediate first aid was just like blocked. Yeah. So that's how we got rid of safe eyes on our computer. Go figure. It was great. <laughs> So, so you guys were basically teenagers, yeah. it sounds like, when you were able to get, but it was still very much overlooked, like their, your emails and everything. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Before so, that, I had like pen pals through magazines. Yeah. Like, yeah. yeah the clubhouse I ones. I, I did King's Daughter pen pals for a number of years. I was like corresponding with homesteaders and various parts of the country, and, you know, as you do. As you do. <laughs> the only method of communication at that point. <laughs> Yeah, no, it's a really, it's a really stark transition, I think, the the pre-internet and post-internet period, because I didn't get, I mean, I think I got my first flip phone when I was definitely, I had to have, been, I think I was still living with my parents, but I had to have been like 18 or 19. Mm-hmm. Um, and I didn't get my first email um, until I was 21. So, so I was by that point, 
21 was when I think the year I left. Yeah. So, so that was kind of like <laughs> my first big thing, but like pre that, I mean, it was just, yeah, it was like, you had to do everything. I mean, there was just, it's just, it's very difficult to explain to people actually younger, like what this was actually like. like you don't Let me have. explain to you <laughs> what a modem work, how a modem works with the phone I line and how, your, and how your mother is going to be like yelling at you because she needs to know when your father is coming home. So I don't think my parents understood. I don't think they had a clue. They didn't know anything about MySpace. So I was on, I think MySpace was like previous nice. to me getting yeah, out. MySpace so that was, was like the first thing. Mm-hmm. And AOL Messenger, which was like really weird at the time. Oh, I mean, yeah. Like nothing ever really came of that. But like that was the first sort of like chatting mm-hmm. with people from the from the beyond. <laughs> Chat yeah. roulette on AIM. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 God, such a different world, such a different world. And I feel like it, it really changed the the way people were able to talk about things. Yeah. From your perspective as an academic, what do you wish most people, you know, normies understood about homeschooling? <laughs> so I think the way people talk about it we're usually talking over each other so much. Um, and I think one of the, like the the core thing, I think people, I hope people come away from understanding homeschooling is that there's, there's no one typical experience. And so you can't use, like you need to listen to everybody's experience, but you shouldn't take anybody's one experience as like typical of homeschooling. And that's something I see usually like, like across all conversations. And so I, that's the one thing I think I, I, I hope people would realize. Um, I've gone into conferences and workshops where like it's definitely a very pro homeschooling crowd and they can't just believe that anything bad would ever ha- like people with good <laughs> intentions. Like how could like this ever be even a real thing? Like this just must be a, like a messed up person. And I'm like, well, must be no. nice. people and that's the other thing like people and this is like look from the historian speaking people with really great intentions good-hearted intentions have caused a lot of devastating pain and that has happened in homeschooling and so knowing that I think I hope we can you know approach it in a little bit more of a thoughtful way um it's it's not it's like the intent in this case, doesn't necessarily matter. Like you can really still hurt mm-hmm. people, even if you think, you know, you love the, there's a lot of well-meaning parents out there who love their children, who caused a lot of pain. And I just want people to understand that. And, and hopefully through recognizing that we can, you know, address, you know, what went wrong. You can't learn and grow unless you're willing to admit that something was wrong. Like, yeah, it's really hard. Yeah. Which is like the hardest thing, I think, because at at a certain point in the homeschooling journey, a lot of homeschooling parents take that on as like their identity. Like they are a homeschooling parent. And and it's interesting because they'll they'll get into homeschooling not feeling like they're going to be that way, not wanting to be that way. And it will just kind of be like a, a, a slow creep. Yeah. Well, and I try to empathize with that. I mean, like, 
I can understand like, okay, you, you've gone into this with really great intentions. You've wanted to mm. provide the best for your kids. And at some point, like this goes wrong. Like it's very hard to accept that. I can understand that. Um, yeah. So I, I hopefully, <laughs> hopefully though, we can all like move beyond this, learn from this and, and do better. Yeah. Yeah. So if people want to find your work, where do you suggest they go and what do you want them to read first? What are you the most proud of? Okay. So I would say, so first off, if people would like (laughs) to contribute to this project, if you have any homeschooling magazines, if you have a story you'd like to tell, because I'm hoping that this will also turn into something of like an oral history project, Mm -hmm. um, reach out to me. I can be contacted at lmaxwell at fiu.edu. I also have a website, uh, lindsaymaxwell.com. They can go to, uh, to reach out to me. So, so I'm in sort of like the, uh, the, the early stages of this project. I want this to turn into a digital archive that researchers will be able to go to and, and access these sources. So in the process of digitizing these like thousands of magazines, um, so... of you have a good <laughs> scanner, I hope. Yeah. So, so, uh, yeah, so, so reach out to me, contact me and I hope to, to make this something that will be useful to people going forward. This would be incredible. If I, if I had could get my hands on a library of these it, digitally. I want to like, see I, that map. If they were searchable, oh my God, <laughs> my heart. No, like right yeah. now they don't really exist. Like I've had to go to a few archives uh, where they exist just in boxes, mm-hmm. but, but very scantily. I mean, literally where I've mostly found this is through like Facebook messenger like contacting mm-hmm. people in homeschool groups and through ebay i mean yeah it's the 21st century that's what we're doing yeah right right that's how it goes all right so if you have magazines get in touch with Lindsay. yes <laughs> please do yeah i really i really want to see where this winds up i really want to see like the map of connections because there are so many magazines and it like before the internet, that was all that we had to like disseminate information. Like mm-hmm. that was how you learned what other homeschoolers were doing is you got whichever magazine was popular at your homeschool convention. It was that and it was so I mean, like the way that they're broken down, they've got like the editorials. So that's kind of like you can read that as like where the ideology is headed um, in the homeschooling movement. But then you have like readers, you have like articles that are, and they come from all kinds of, they come from like Rush Dooney, they reprint Michael Ferris. So you can see like, what are the influences going on in this community? But then they have like readers letters and they Mm -hmm. publish like the names, sometimes the addresses even of these people. Oh, wow. Yeah. So that, so that the readers of the magazines can respond. And so it's like this, this like community, right? But for historians, this is amazing because you can actually like see where people are from. I mean, that's also part of a larger story too, is that in reading some of these, you realize this isn't even just an American thing. This is, no, I mean, yeah. I'm, thinking writing ab- in I'm thinking from- about Above Rubies in particular. Oh, for sure. It's so international where their audience was just everywhere. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. And Nancy Campbell, she's still at it. Um, oh, I, contact- yeah. I contacted her for part of this and she was, she talked to me. Um, 
And so, yeah, no, they, that's a really interesting angle, the New Zealand and Australia angle. I mean, I think I haven't teased this out enough yet, but I mean, I think a big part of this story is like the global um, mission movement because you have yeah, a lot for sure. of missionaries writing in. Yeah. And that's just something that hasn't been really looked at at all yet. So Yeah, that hopefully. hasn't really been talked about much yeah. at all. Don't worry. We have we have someone teed up who's going to talk to us about their time with Wycliffe. That'll be fun. All right. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be a good season. <laughs> the overlap. The overlap. There's so much. <laughs> the overlap is almost a circle. Well, I feel like there's also like, you know, if you look at the uh, missions updates, from oh, the yeah. missionaries, yeah. the fundraising updates that they would send out. Those are little magazines. There's little newsletters. Like, what do those say? You know, where, who are they talking about, too? I bet there's a lot of overlap there as well. For sure. I mean, this this kind of emerged out of that dissertation on Pentecostalism. And that Pentecostals are one of the first, well, the, the first group, I would say, to really successfully do this in terms of, like, brief, like uh, moving out and beyond the institutionalized church and what they do for that so so they view themselves as a renewalist movement they don't need the institutionalized church they they think this is a movement of the holy spirit and so they go out in faith um and really with nothing more than just their their periodical networks and so people they'll write updates into these magazines all the time and people with leaving their addresses and so people will, who are reading these magazines will su- send checks to these missionaries all over the place, right? Mm-hmm. And so they're not really being supported. This is 1906. They're not being supported by an institutionalized church at this point. They're just writing into these magazines. People are, sen- it's the first real like sort of like Christian crowdsourced funding. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> and it works for a lot of them. I mean, within two to four years, Pentecostals are on pretty much like every continent in the world. Like they're just, they're all over the place. And it's one of the fastest growing movements um, of the 20th century. So it's a, Hmm. it's a really successful for them. Fascinating. Fascinating. (laughs) (laughs) We we will have to talk about that itself sometime. (laughs) Oh yeah. Yeah. We're going to have to, there's so much here. Yeah. This was lovely. I love talking to historians. Is there so anything fun. else you want to mention before we wrap up? Anything that we haven't talked about you want to hit on? I think that was pretty much it. I mean, we didn't talk about, I guess, like where it goes from here. Like, so we have like the story of like the, the 1980s, 1990s homeschooling movement and how it could, but how it connects to today is also something I've been thinking a lot about. I do think there's a connection as I mentioned before, with that whole like Dave Ramsey vacation, there's, there's a story there, I think, in, in terms of like the, um, there, there's such an emphasis in a lot of these magazines on self-sufficiency and family businesses. Mm -hmm. And that, I think there's a translation there into, into the present day. I'm not quite sure what it is yet, but, um, but I think it kind of feeds into this very individual, individualistic but also very anti-elitist uh, movement that we see kind of like emerging in, oh. in our modern politics i mean is that not like the definition of american mythology right there <laughs> there you go yeah yeah 
Awesome. Well, thank you so much. We're really happy thank you were able to join you. us. This was so great. <laughs> it was wonderful meeting you. I'm glad. Uh, I'm glad you all are out here. I'm glad you have this podcast. I, I'm Likewise. so glad that you're doing this work. This is. I'm. I'm so excited about this project. I. I don't even. It's. It's very cool. It just does my heart good to know that like other people are are, are holding up the other ends of this table. Yeah, <laughs> this is good. Well, that was the thing. I mean, I mean, it's wonderful now. I mean, back. I wish this had been around when I was a teenager. Obviously, mm-hmm. um, damn. <laughs> yeah, but I'm glad that there's a generation that's kind of like talking about this now. Yeah, I mean, I feel like that's that's the the legacy of queer activists all over is like being the person that they needed when they were teenagers. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, we're we're replicating that here. Yeah. yeah. You've been listening to the Kitchen Table Cult podcast. Our music is from the track Janet by the Bend the Heavens on their album Stenazzo. Our producer is Dave the Great. Our podcast is made possible by Patreon donations from listeners like you. To support us and join our community on Slack, check out patreon.com slash kitchen table cult pod. Thanks for listening.